This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Today, our guest, he's a passive investor in 3,400 units across small investments to office, to farmland, to ATM syndications. And he's been investing in the stock market for like 40 years. Uh, it's a long time. He's been investing a long time, but his name is Andrew Rosenberg. He's a passive investor. He works full-time for his family business, Ralph Rosenberg Court Reporters. He first became hooked on investments after buying his first stock at age 13. You're going to hear a few segments with him. We're going to talk about his background and uh, stock market and, and getting into real estate and single family and then moving, wanting to stay passive and, and going into you know the syndication type deals over a couple different segments here. I know you're going to learn a lot from him today and in the next couple of days after as well. Andrew, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on. I'm looking forward to getting into more about passive investing too. I know many of our listeners are passive investors like yourself. And so looking forward to hearing more about your experience and us all learning from them at the same time, but welcome. Well, I really appreciate it, Whitney. Thank you so much for having me on and would just love to answer anything you've got Been looking forward to this all week. So thank you. Yeah. Andrew, give the listeners and myself a little more color or description and background about yourself and your focus right now in this uh, real estate syndication game that we play. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll just start first with the why, and then I work backwards to the, I guess, their history, or what I've often referred to as the trajectory. You know, for me, you know, I'm 47, married with a son. And, you know, for me, I'm at a stage in my life where I need to downsize a little bit of aggravation factor. So single family homes, they're great investments. I'm never going to say they're not, but they're not passive. So there's there's degrees of passive, but they're not passive by any means, especially if you want to have good returns. So for me, being more passive and going into syndications was a good route. And then I just frankly, of the asset classes of the community of people in asset classes, by far, I enjoy commercial real estate the most. And people ask me why, and I explain to them, it's going to sound simple, but it's much deeper than it sounds, which I, I'll let people understand it for themselves. But it's the only asset class I see that's truly collaborative by nature in, in practice. So what I mean by that is it's not a zero-sum game. Operators help other operators. I go to Zoom meetups. Everybody's supportive. Compared to other asset classes, when I've hung out with people, you're not dealing with whose uh, physical equipment is the biggest, let's just say. You know, the egos are much better managed. And you'll notice that the most successful people are the best people. And in other asset classes, I find it not necessarily the inverse, but not as highly correlated to rewarding goodness. So I'd much rather be involved in that space with my time and my emotions and my psyche than the other asset class spaces. Now, that's not to say that I don't invest in other asset classes. Where I'm going to really want to spend my time is going to be what makes me happy. I'm 47. I don't look that old. I, you know, I'm a little bit gray here, but someone asked me, how long have you been investing? And when I say 34 years, they look at me kind of like, what? And I have to remind them, I bought my first stock when I was 13. You know, I was already learning about investments well before 13. 
both my grandfathers, my best friend's grandfathers, my father, that's what they like to talk about. Frankly, we didn't talk about sports. You know, I didn't get the bedtime story about Hansel and Gretel. You know, I got stories of the Hunt brothers trying to corner the silver market. It's kind of a recurring joke I tell, but it's, it's actually serious, you know, learning about, you know, my father telling me, you know, it's not much fun getting a margin call at, at uh, three in the morning because, uh, you know, silver's down, you know, th- just things you learn way before schooling or way before you would ever read about in a magazine I had already kind of heard about. So I bought my first stock and it was fun and it started off, you know, a good thing. And, you know, mutual funds, equities, you know, they're good. You know, I've lost money. I've made money. That was all fun. But you get a bunch of stock pickers in a room and everybody's got the biggest ego and whose stock went up the most or whose sharp ratio is the best. And I never really enjoyed it. The crypto bros, I mean, I could tell you somebody, I have a 500% return and well, they've got a 600% return, you know, and they don't really help each other. It's just more about bracking and who's right. You know, the gold bugs. I love gold. I love the history of gold. I'm a, in college. I was a history minor. I love reading about history and everything. Gold's nice and all, but it doesn't make me money. So it's a very small portion of a portfolio. I'm not docking gold. I'm just the idea of being a gold stacker and having somebody rob my house or pay a, a gold vault fees doesn't really do it for me. I, don't get me wrong. I'm simplifying the argument. They, gold has its benefits. Doesn't pay dividends, doesn't pay distributions, not particularly tax friendly. Obviously, I hate paper assets of gold. And then we won't go into it too far because I know this isn't a gold show, but even in the vaulting world, there's been a lot of drama. Is it allocated? Is it segregated? Does the bank actually have your gold? Anybody wants to go down that rabbit hole, there's just Google it or you, know, you can always hit you know, me up or just go on LinkedIn, frankly. There's tons of people that would talk your ear off. So for me, you know, real estate, it's pretty obvious. It's the most tax-favored asset, and it's not even close. There isn't even a number two or three in my mind. It's easy to understand. It's relatively stupid-proof. It generally tends to go up. It cash, it pays rent is nice thing. You see it in your bank account. So for me, it was, okay, let's do real estate. So we bought too many single-family homes, and it got unwieldy. So it got to the point where I had to decide, do we continue down this route? And it would create a need to expand to justify making a company out of it, bringing on a virtual assistant, bringing off a staff. And it it just, it didn't work for me. And some people say that's nuts. I mean, that would make sense. It would make more money. You like the asset class. And I said, no, the point of the money, the why was to remain passive to be a good husband, to be a good father, husband and father. And, you know, my family runs, a, we have a family business and it's quite time demanding and it's quite stressful. And that's where my focus, of course, has to be. The number one priority is my family and the family business. Investing is supposed to be a side hobby. It's not meant to be a distraction. So I had to figure out, well, I like real estate, but I don't want to get this many phone calls about evicting a tenant approving the air conditioner, you know, needing to be replaced. So I looked around and I found out, hey, there's this thing called syndications. And that's how you entered down the, the rabbit hole of syndications. So flash forward, I'm invested in numerous syndications, quite a few. And it dawned on me that, you know, if you really want to do it well, again, I'd, 
you know, passive is kind of a misnomer with me. You're going to want to really get to know the deals, how to analyze the deals and having access to the best people. You know, obviously that's an advantage. It's not like a mutual fund where you just can open up a newspaper and or Google it and you'll find who's the best mutual fund managers. It's a little different in commercial real estate. You know, for viewers that don't know, the SEC, they mean well, but I think they cause more trouble than they help. 506B, 506C, we won't go in too long. I see you're nodding your head. I see your eyes getting it. The best syndicators, in some instances, you have to be accredited. Not everybody advertises. So some of the best deals are 506B, which means you have to have an existing meaningful relationship. So how do you meet these people if you don't know them and they can't advertise? So the only way to do that is to network, network, and network. And in the process of networking, you find out how little you know, and it turns out it's a lot of fun. So I go to consistently three to four Zoom networks a week. We uh, have our own, and that's been the best source of both knowledge and increasing good deal flow. I mean, the point isn't to increase deal flow where I'm reviewing a new investment every day. I don't want to be doing that. I want to review good deals. And when you find your handful of syndicators that you like, know, and trust, you just want to have enough deal flow that, God forbid, I sell a house tomorrow. I don't want to be sitting on the cash forever. You want to have access to a good deal. I know I'm being a little bit overboard with emphasizing good deal, but yeah, there's no shortage of deals out there once you're in the know that now the new problem has become, you went from not enough deal flow to how am I going to vet it all? And then you realize it's not all good. I'm not saying there's a lot of junk out there necessarily, but there's a, I'll just be polite and say there's a lot of average and average right now definitely isn't good. You know, two years ago, average was fine. Average was make rents were just going to skyrocket and whether or not you were almost a good operator, you were going to make good money. You know, Warren Buffett has that famous expression that everyone loves. And you know, I apologize to everyone who's going to roll their eyes. They've heard it before. But you, know, you only know who's swimming naked until the tide rolls out, right? And I think I might have inverted it when I paraphrased it. But, you know, we get the idea that everybody is, you know, like it's the same thing with the stock market or any market. You could be a Bitcoin fund manager and Two years ago, you looked like a genius, and now you look like an idiot. Did your skill really improve or decrease depending on the time period, or was it the time period? You know, it's the same with if you had a tech fund and you were an equities manager. Were you really a good manager? You know, cough, cough, Kathy Woods, you know, right? Everybody looks like a genius in a bull market. Now, I don't know what she's down, and I'm not just picking on her too much, but now she's down a ton. Is she a terrible fund manager now? I don't know. It's hard to tell really what she did. All she really did was ride a trend. You know, we'll, we'll see. That's one thing I would advise people about real estate is if you're with the best of the best, the best teams, they're going to make money. I've always found it weird that people get so enamored with these uh, news headlines. It directs everything. It seems everybody does, right? How you feel every day is dependent upon the news headlines. Yeah, and I'm going to say something that's inappropriate, but that's my personality. So I, you know, just bear with me. And I know anybody watching, I just apologize, but it's how I feel. Why am I going to read a 25 year old's 
article about the economy or about investing who's living in her mom's basement. And granted, she graduated from an Ivy League college or he graduated from Ivy League college or sorry, they graduated from an Ivy League college, you know, to be politically correct. And they've never owned real estate, don't have any investments. Why do I care about their opinion? I just have zero interest. The mainstream media is just amusement for me. I call it fintainment. It's just garbage, frankly. You know, to say a market's going down, okay, that's lovely. That meant bargains are harder to find. That doesn't mean bargains doesn't exist. Right. That, that kind of an absolutum or bipolar world is a sign of ignorance, stupidity, or psychological disorder upon a person. The best operators are not the same as the newer operators. Who gets the call from the broker for an off-market deal when it's a good deal? The person who's closed before, the person with more funds, the person with the track record. We all know lending is not created equal. You and I go into a loan and Joe Fairless goes in for the same loan. Joe gets the loan before us. That's how life works. Life isn't fair. Never was meant to be. I'm good friends with Joe, so I may call him or it's like, hey, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Hey, Joe, stop hogging all, all the lending money. Okay. Yeah. You know, you know where I'm going with that. It's like Warren Buffett For and sure. I walk into a bank. Right. You know, we're not getting the same terms. We're not getting the same rates. Obviously, yeah. I'm probably going to be dealing with underlings. Three months later, I'm meeting with the loan officer. You know, he's already at lunch with the loan officer. That's just called life. And I know there's things that you like to consider before investing in a syndication. Maybe let's talk about some of those. Then we'll dive into even some of the questions you like to ask operators and how you vet them. But what do you like to consider beforehand? I think the first thing that people need to understand is that it's a moving target, your education and your knowledge level. It never ends. It's not like you're going to have on stone tablets, the 10 commandments of vetting a deal. You're not going to ask a syndicator every single one of these questions. I've seen it. You know, Bronson Hill, who's a good friend of mine, I, I just adore him. I'm a little biased. I really like him personally. You know, he has a, on his website, I believe, like, a, I forget what it is, like the 18 questions you should ask. You know, Lane Kaoka, who's a personal friend of mine, I think he had 25. Benjamin Yeager, who's a friend of mine. I think he had 99. And of course, I always tease Mike Benjamin, no one's asking 99. But he wanted to be exhaustive. He wanted to cover everything and he meant well. And it's good. You have to understand that it's a moving target. A lot of the stuff will be covered in the presentation. One of the funniest things to me in the world is like, my wife would spend two hours researching a washer dryer, which good, I don't want to buy a lemon, right? But if I ask her to watch a 45-minute webinar video, she's not going to make it through. Granted, it's just boring as all hell to her. But the washer-dryer set was maybe five grand at the most. And we're talking about investing 50 grand, and she doesn't want to watch the video. And fortunately, my wife never watches you know, any social media. And I'm just being tongue-in-cheek. I love her. But the joke is that most people will spend more time researching a toaster oven than their investments. Yeah. It's just crazy. I mean, you're going to read some people will research the heck out of buying a new truck. Truck costs about the same as a syndication investment. You know, you're going to go in for test drives and you're 
reading. I don't know what truck guys read, uh, not car and driver, but you know, whatever publication truck guys read, I'm not a truck guy. You know, get the analogy. It's like, man, what are you doing? You're going to spend countless weekends reading about is the iWatch good or a Samsung watch good or whatever bling the kids wear these days on, on a wrist. And you'll see, I'm not into that stuff. But when I ask somebody to spend time on investments, they won't do it. I've never understood it. You want to be a controller of your financial future. You don't want to be a victim. And it's a substantial amount of money. And the consequences are pretty significant about, can you pay your bills? Can you retire? Can you send Johnny off to college? You know, can Jill go to graduate school? Can you afford your divorce? You know, these things are kind of serious. So I would say like, that's part of the issue is the allure of mailbox money or passive. Get over it. It's not. There is no such thing as passive in life. I mean, there is passive. If you want to be truly passive, stay on the sidelines and be a victim. That's my unkind advice to you. So, you know, you're going to have to get over yourself and do the work. The main things for me is I really hammer on on two issues. I don't know underwriting. I'm not going to open up the spreadsheet and check everything down to a fine-tooth comb. If you're being honest with yourself, even if you're from a financial background, and I have a master's in accounting, I did work in corporate finance. Even if you're quantitatively oriented, you're not really going to do a good job of proofreading the finance. All your goals looking at the underwriting is to look at the major assumptions and say, are these in line with the industry? Are these reasonable? So if you're looking at a market and they've got 10% rent growth a year for the next five years, run for the hills, it's baloney. That's obvious, but a lot of people don't even do that kind of stuff. The other thing is, if you're looking at the underwriting, you're like, it just looks like numbers. Ask. A lot of people are afraid to look stupid or ignorant. Again, that's your ego or pride getting in your way. And frankly, that's what their job is. Their job is to service the investor. If they already answered it in the webinar, ask again. And if they're annoyed to answer you, give you a lackey, or it takes three days to get you an answer back, don't invest with them. I mean, in all seriousness, do not invest with someone who would do that because you'll meet, and you said Joe Fairless is a friend of yours. You can ask Joe Fairless, I know enough about that. You can ask him a stupid question as an LP investor. He's going to answer it. He's not going to ridicule you. He would not mock you. He's going to help you, which you do not want your money with people who don't appreciate you or your money. If you're just a target, if all you are is a dollar sign, a stepping stone to their dreams, that's probably not the business partner you want. That may even be a good little step, right? Is to ask them about a kind of basic question and see what kind of response you get. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Honored to have you back. Appreciate your time again. Well, we just had a few minutes still. I wanted to be able to jump in and talk about what's one thing that you would consider as a deal breaker in every transaction? I know we've talked about a few of those things, but is there anything that's like, maybe you've seen or maybe you have an example of this in a few transactions that you've dealt with firsthand that you would say, hey, this is a deal breaker? It's just really, if at all you feel like, the business plan doesn't have a high degree of succeeding because they don't have the right skill sets and don't do it. You need the full team. We talked about, I'm not going to get into the detail, but you need the full team. A bunch of guys with spreadsheets 
is not going to cut it. They made money in the last few years. The next few years, and I know we're going to jump into the future, the next few years are going to be harder. You need the people that when the who pits the fan, they can get additional capital. Something bad happens. They can call a Joe Farrellis and be like, man, we're in trouble. X happened. What do I do? They have a network where they can call. They're smart enough, networked enough, and humble enough to say a hurricane happened. What do I do now? We didn't have this in the pro forma. And a guy like Joe Farrellis can say, you know, you're getting screwed on a, a fire you had in your unit. Hire a private adjuster to make sure you get the fair value of your money. A young syndicator might not know that that was even an option. You know, a Joe Farrellis would advise you know his mentees or his friend, hey, go hire an adjuster; it'll work out. The thing is, like when you're looking at investments, if you get the sense if something goes wrong, do they have the skill set and resources to pivot? If you can't answer that question, it's not a good deal. I hadn't thought about asking. You know, I invest passively as well with a number of operators, at, and obviously I know them or have known them for a number of years. But I've not thought about asking as a qualifying question: Who are your mentors? Who's providing guidance to you? I mean, I put such a high level of weight on my mentors and who they are, and willing to pay quite a bit. I mean, and do you know for specific? just to be connected with people that I know are going to give us great guidance and have skills that we don't, we don't have or don't have yet. And so anyway, it's an interesting thought to ask, who are your mentors? Who's guiding you, you know, as you're thinking about investing? It's very revealing. If you're a Brad Sumrock student, I respect Brad. doesn't mean I'm investing in your deal, but it just gives me a little more willingness to review the deal. If you hit me up out of the blue make it more likely that I'm going to take the time to look at the deal because I've dealt with several of his students and they have their stuff together. And that's not a plug for Brad. I'm not affiliated with him in any way, but several of his students have at least presented good deals to me. And there's a gentleman to be unnamed who he has a pretty big network and he has his students running around. And frankly, if you're one of his students, I'm not looking at your deal. Yeah. The mentors matter. For sure. Yeah, this is the things that network, 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 and you want to call it passivism. It's a term, but it's not passive. I know we just have a, a few moments left, Andrew, but obviously, you know, the burning question that everybody's having, right? You know, what do you expect to happen in the syndication industry in the coming six to 12 months or just thoughts around that or how you're preparing one way or the other for what you do expect? Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to talk about is interest rates going to keep going up? Is inflation peaking? Are we in a recession? Are we going to have a recession? How deep? How bad? Nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know. But, you know, you put a gun to my head and say, Andy, tell the truth and stop caveating. You know, just be, go out there. I'm going to tell you my view is that the wheat will be separated from the chaff. And I don't know if that's six months, two years, three years. I don't put a timeline on it. But I'm very convinced, just like all the other capital markets, Bad operators will suffer. They will die. And the better operators are going to gobble it up. So you want to make sure you're with the experienced operators. You want to make sure you're with ethical people. Bad people are going to be over levered. They're going to have warts in their deals. There'll be something wrong. If things go wrong and you're with an unethical operator, you're you're going to be left holding the bag. So it's never been more important to pick the better operators. Markets can go down, 
but a better operator is going to find good ways to reduce expenses. Bad operators are going to do things to reduce expenses that cause tenants to leave and all of a sudden problems compound and you're playing the money pit game. So it's never been more important to pick good operators. And I really think there's value, there's opportunity, sadly, in chaos. The greatest wealth is made during bad times. You know, it sounds very heartless of me to say, but the smart money that I know, they're really eager about the next two, three years. They really are looking forward to um, swooping in and buying stuff pennies on the dollar. You know, at post GFC, the people that had the cash, that had the insight and had the ability, frankly, I'm just going to say it, you know, it's rude, but the balls to buy, they made a lot, a lot of money. That opportunity, I believe, is coming again. Now, that's not an excuse to go watch TikTok and Netflix and jerk around for the next two, three years waiting for the bottom. It's exactly the opposite. Right now, you should be eagerly learning the industry and networking like crazy. And I'm not saying not to buy deals. I'm just saying you better be buying really good deals with really good operators. This is not an excuse to have money sitting in the bank losing, what is it? Not, I forget what inflation is now, nine? Let's just call it eight, nine percent. Oh, yeah. You know, we're not giving you an excuse to fail. This is not an excuse to passivity. But yeah, there's going to be some wonderful opportunities presenting themselves. So I would say eyes wide open to opportunity, not to be scared or paralyzed. But, you know, by all means, like stop drinking the Kool-Aid the party isn't going to go on forever. You're not going to get these 30% 18-month returns. If you're reading that on LinkedIn, and that's how you're picking operators, you're probably bringing on way more downside risk than you realize. And the same mistakes you made in Bitcoin and in the equities, you're just going to repeat in, in real estate. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.